today on Act News Daily. It's a moving target, and depending what your own personal goals are, it can change. But for me, it's looking at always improving, moving forward. What can we do to do better than we did yesterday? Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Delaney Howell here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Flying solo for today, Mike, is traveling, heading from Dubuque to Galesburg, I want to say, for some speeches and some farmer events. So it's just me today. I'm actually heading out to an event tomorrow myself at the Marine State Bank. They're doing their annual customer meeting, so I'm speaking to a group of farmers tomorrow. Today, however, I was working on my taxes. It is tax season for many folks, including myself. So I was working on my taxes, getting stuff put together for that. Not an exciting time of year. Probably my least favorite task to do every year. But getting it out of the way, getting it done with for the year. Let's talk about some ag news going on for today. This is something we really haven't talked about a whole lot on the podcast But politics, the presidential election is coming up here, rapidly approaching, especially as the Democrats are trying to figure out who their nominee is going to be to represent the Democratic Party. And of course, as we know, former New York Mayor Mike Bloomberg has recently stepped into the race. He appeared in his first Democratic presidential debate or is appearing in his first debate tonight in Nevada ahead of the caucuses that are happening in Nevada on Saturday. He has really moved up in the polls as of recently, and many are saying maybe he's the black horse that, or the dark horse or whatever that is, that that enters the race kind of last minute. He has kind of been a front runner and really challenging Bernie Sanders, but Upsettingly enough, he has said some things that have really caught agriculture's attention. Many of you have seen on our Facebook page, we shared this from Bloomberg from, well, it's a couple different times really. So he's made a couple different comments regarding agriculture, one of which happened in 2016 at Oxford. He reportedly by the New York Post said Quote, I could teach anybody, even people in this room, no offense intended, to be a farmer. Then he also told them that, quote, it's a process. You dig a hole, you put a seed in it, you put dirt on top of it, add water, up comes corn. And so we've seen a lot of folks pushing back on him, including South Dakota governor, who's also a fellow Democrat, Christy Noem on Tuesday, said that they were nothing but pompous pompous ignorance. And we've seen a lot of ag Twitter, I've seen a lot of ag Twitter react to this quote, which again was dug up from, you know, about four years ago, and that's Bloomberg's defense. But it's also a little scary to think that perhaps he doesn't appreciate what we do here in agriculture. And if he does secure the Democratic nominee, he could become, you know, eventually our new president. But he not only took stabs, I suppose you could say, at the ag industry, but also just at the Industrial Revolution, and said, quote, you put the piece of metal on the lath, you turn the crank in the direction of the arrow, and you have a job. And we created a lot of jobs. At one point, 98% of the world worked in agriculture. Today, it's 2% in the United States. And so he has been trying to kind of cover his butt, if you would like to call it that. And he says he didn't mean to offend farmers. This was a quote that happened a long time ago. It was way out of context, but still agriculture is not responding favorably. 
What will happen from this? I don't know. It's going to be an interesting one. But New York continues to be one of the most progressive states in our nation. So maybe it's a little telling that he comes from New York, former New York mayor, and said those things about agriculture. I'm not here to make a decision for you. I'm just reporting the facts, folks. But another fact to be reported has the National Weather Service is warning that again this year there's a very high risk of having some continued flooding. They said the ground is already saturated, which of course we know, we've talked about on the podcast, as Mike mentioned last week when he was in the Dakotas, they're worried about getting into the ground. And it's only mid-February, but we still really haven't seen the ground freeze, essentially. And so USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey has said that adding to an already wet spring with already higher level river levels and snowpack kind of offers a three-pronged recipe for disaster. So wet ground, high river levels, and a lot of snowfall. He said it's only mid-February, so still a little early maybe to be looking at that, but very likely that we face, again, some field work delays. And so, so far this year, interestingly enough, we've seen farmers file claims on about 19 million acres, right? Those prevent plant acres and claiming indemnities totaling $4.3 billion. South Dakota has been the largest number of those prevent plant acres, followed by Illinois and Ohio and also Missouri. But South Dakota's substantially higher than the other ones. So again, I don't know what's going to happen this year. We we hate to think about being in that cycle again of having a wet year like we did in 2019. Maybe it won't be quite as bad as 2019. Maybe it'll be worse. I don't know. The thing I have a hard time believing is that folks along the Arkansas, Missouri, and Mississippi River were able to, not not the people living there, but the Army Corps of Engineers, I, I have a hard time believing that they addressed the issues that caused the flooding in 2019. I have a really hard time believing that they're ready for 2020 and potentially seeing more floods happen again. I don't know. Just my speculation again. I know we were watching that for quite a while and for most of the summer, we still saw a lot of that ground flooded western Iowa, eastern Nebraska, so all the way down the stretch there. So... I don't know, going to be an interesting year, that is for sure. And another reason that this year is going to be an interesting year is because of hemp production. We're not seeing, we're expected to see a huge number of acres turn into hemp for this year, but definitely seeing some farmers dip their toes in the water. We've also seen the USDA's Risk Management Agency just today announced a new crop insurance pilot program called the Nursery Value Select for the crop year 2021. So not in 2020, but in 2021, they've put together a crop insurance option for nursery crop producers, including those folks growing hemp. So we're finally seeing them put together some things to make hemp an insurable product. Now through the Nursery Value Select insurance program, but again, not going to be available until 2021. We are seeing the deadline to purchase this insurance May 1st for quite a few states and September 1st for quite a few others. And so head to the risk management rma.usda.gov slash nursery or excuse me slash topics slash nursery 
will have a list of more information there if you're considering growing hemp in 2020 or 2021. Might be worth checking out because I don't know a lot of folks that are offering health and not health insurance that are offering crop insurance yet for hemp production. Will another headline breaking the news today is President Trump's upcoming trip to India. Next week he'll be heading there to discuss a trade pact amongst other things, but he's really suggested as of lately that a comprehensive deal won't likely happen until much later this year. He said, we can't have a trade deal with India, but I'm really saving the big deal for later on. He said, we're doing a very big trade deal with India. We'll have it. I don't know if it'll be done before the election, but we will have a very big deal with with India. So pushing that, kicking that can down the road a little further, it seems. Not sure we're going to have that by the election. I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see. That is for sure. Looking through the headlines for today, I don't really see a ton of other headlines that I think we need to address. So with that, let's take a look at the commodity markets before we get to today's interview, which actually Mike recorded with Megan Dwyer talking about sustainability within the corn industry. So do stay tuned for that great interview that Mike had time to snag today while he is off speaking and shaking hands and kissing babies and all that. No, just kidding. He's probably not kissing any babies, but definitely shaking some farmers' hands. Looking at the markets for today after yesterday's explosive moves in the wheat markets, we didn't see them follow through today, but really didn't see too much of a correction either. Let's start things off, however, in the March corn contract, which closed down two and a half cents to end at three eighty and a half, while the May closed up two and a quarter to end at three eighty five and a quarter. In the soybean pits, they were the winners today with the March contract adding on five cents to close at eight ninety seven and a quarter, the May up three and a quarter to close at nine oh five and a half. In the wheat pits, as I mentioned, just slight weakness on the day with the March contract, cutting a penny and a half to end at five sixty-five and a quarter. The May down two and a half cents to close at five sixty-two and a half. Hopping over to look into the livestock markets, green pretty much well down the screen, except for in the live cattle market, we saw a little bit of mixed trade on the day today, with the February contract closing down twelve cents to close at one twenty-one thirty. The April, however, added twenty cents to close at one twenty eighty. In the feeder cattle pits, the March contract added a dollar forty-seven and a half to close up one forty seventy-seven on the day. The April up a dollar twenty-five to close at one forty-three oh two. In the lean hog markets, the April contract added two oh seven to close at sixty-seven fifty-seven. The May up a dollar seventy-five to close at seventy-five thirty. And rounding out our markets with the dairy class three milk futures, the February contract shed just a penny on the day to close at sixteen ninety-seven, while the March down twenty-four cents to close at sixteen seventy-seven. Without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Mike, who was talking with Megan Dwyer today of Illinois Corn. Well, folks, today we're going to be talking sustainability. I'm over here at the event for Cornelius Seed up in Dubuque, and we just had a great presentation by Megan Dwyer. Megan and her husband farm down in Henry County, Illinois, but she's also very active. In fact, works with Illinois corn growers, and she targets issues of sustainability. So, Megan, thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. Thanks, Mike. Let's start. And this question came up at the end of your presentation. I like to ask this before any time we talk sustainability. 
what the heck is it? What, what is, how do you define sustainability? Yeah, great mm-hmm. question. You know, it's a moving target and depending what your own personal goals are, it can change. But for me, it's looking at always improving, moving forward. What can we do to do better than we did yesterday? And as an industry, let's talk really broad specifics first. How are we doing? Are we making that move towards sustainability or so far is it just a lot of talk it? Yeah, you know, I think there are strides being made. We're seeing an adoption of things like cover crops, looking at reduced tillage, changing our nitrogen plans. Um, But we have a long way to go. If we're trying to meet state-specific nutrient loss reduction strategy plans and goals, uh, we have a long way to go to hit those marks. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. I'm most familiar with Iowa's uh, nutrient reduction loss program. You're very familiar with Illinois. When you take the two of them as two of the largest contributors to the nutrient burden in the Mississippi River watershed, how are we doing? I know Iowa's kind of come under some fire. Have you seen the same thing in Illinois? Um, we haven't seen the pressure. Maybe Iowa has, but we just did have our most recent biennial report come out that wasn't as optimistic as we'd like to see. But one of the big takeaways there is in the most recent years, not counting 19, we saw an increase in 13% of flow. When we're adding extra water, of course, we're going to see more movements. And so that in itself is a moving target. And how can we best adapt and be ready to be proactive when we're seeing increased rainfall and, and rain events? Well, the increased rainfall, that was a huge event across every part of the Midwest this past year. How, and and you work with politicians quite a bit, you're down there in Springfield having these conversations. When you bring up the fact that, hey, in 2019, we had the wettest year we could have imagined, and it came at the worst time for nutrient flow off of farms, do you feel like they get it? Or do you feel like to them, this nutrient thing, this nutrient loss reduction is a horse they're just going to find a way to beat no matter what? Well, it's tough. I mean, they're hearing stories from the ag side, but they're also hearing stories from other groups that feel like this should be addressed differently. Um, You know, we know that most people are three to four generations removed from the farm. And so starting with the basics and and bringing them in under the why we're doing things that we do and what is necessary is equally as important uh, before we we jump into the trenches and, and fight the battle. But we are fighting the battle. I mean, and I think growers across at least those two states, and I've had great conversations in South Dakota and Missouri and Ohio, where we're also fighting these same battles. Progress is being made. We are seeing more acres be put into cover crops. We're seeing more folks look at edge of field types of mitigation products. Um, When you look at that aspect of the industry, what has been some of the biggest successes you think that uh, agriculture has made in addressing, again, let's talk nutrient loss uh, right off the bat? Yeah, you know, I think breaking the mindset of doing things how we've always done it and that we can bring some of these things back that maybe were a part of our farming operations 50 years ago and showing how we can bring them back today and they can be relevant and even um, profitable in our in our farms today. And the reason this is important, you know, I, I think it's always good to clarify, is you know, we look out at some of the examples of places that have nutrient plans in place that are controlled by legislators. And of course, I think of the Chesapeake Bay right off the bat. Right now in the Midwest, all of these plans are voluntary. We're trying to get growers to get together and act amongst one another so things aren't pushed down our throats by legislators and bureaucrats. When you talk to some of the non-ag folks, those people with perhaps little different agendas than what we're used to in agriculture, do you get the sense that there is a lot of pressure to make this not voluntary but mandatory instead? 
Yes, I do. And, you know, some of that is when you see reports that come out that it might take 500 years to hit the goals that have been set, it's hard for them to be patient and wait for things to happen. Um, you know, one thing I don't think they understand is the cost associated with these practices. Farming has been in uh, a negative downturn for the last five years or more um, on some farms. And so finding the resources to implement these practices can be challenging. So if we need to see, want to see this happen, um, we need to find ways that, that make it more affordable and, and financially sound. Are there ways that are being explored right now to make it more financially affordable or or market sound? Yeah, I mean, there's programs happening both in Illinois and Iowa today. A big one that we've been really proud of is the um, $5 an acre reduced premium on your crop insurance that can be applied for if you're not using any other cost share methods. In Illinois, it was a pilot program this past year. We had the 50,000 acres um, spoken for within seven days, and we had close to 80,000 more acres applied for after that point as well. So there's a huge demand for growers that are saying, hey, I'm bearing the cost of this on my own, um, but I would like to take advantage of these programs. Right. I mean, that's a great indication that growers are willing to try things if we can make it work somehow. Absolutely. Now, let's move beyond nutrients. Sustainability covers a lot of different topics. There are some companies out there right now pushing their way into agriculture by looking at ways farmers can store carbon and perhaps they can get paid on it. When you think of sustainability in your role specifically at Illinois Corn, are these things that you're excited about? Are these sideshow attractions? What's your take? I don't think they're things we can ignore. Um, you know, do I think that farmers need to be paid a premium for some of these practices? No. Uh, do I think that we might get to a point where it's just the cost of doing business? Probably. Um, you know, unfortunately, some of these companies aren't being driven by necessarily what they want to do, but their uh, customers, their end users are pushing and striving and demanding these things. And so it's finding out how they can hit their mark. Um, and a lot of times that goes back to agriculture because we can be the solution. Right. I mean, we can put a lot of carbon in the ground here in egg. That's one of the huge advantages we have as we look towards a more sustainable future. Now, Megan, when you think out a little bit longer term or when you're in discussions with your colleagues there at Illinois Corn, what does success look like? What to you is, I can quit my job because we won. <laughs> um, I'm not sure I ever would quit my job. But, uh, <laughs> you know, winning would just be, you know, for me personally, or, you know, talking about corn and the farmers we work with, you know, that my kids would at least have the opportunity to come back. We want to make sure that this is sustainable in the fact that the farm would exist for the next generation, that it would be profitable, something that they would be proud of and want to come back to. Um, you know, we see, again, going back to so many people are removed from the farm, you know, that pride. We want people to, to feel proud and, and feel good about farmers and where their food's coming from, and we want to keep as much of that domestically as possible. This question was asked at the tail end of your presentation. You farm. You and your husband raise livestock. And what have you implemented on your operation that when you're out talking to growers, you can say, hey, this is what we've tried and it's worked for us? Yeah. Um, so we have some diversity within our families and, and my husband and I as well. But, you know, implementing cover crops for grazing and using that as a, um, you know, it's a cheap feed source if you look at it that way and a very efficient with the livestock. That was huge this last year with a lot of the prevent plant acres, uh, changing nitrogen plans. Um, so our side of the family has, we're all liquid. We're all in season split applications using Y drops for late applications late applications of nitrogen, uh, looking at strip till, we have highly erodible ground, so reducing our tillage and no-till on those acres. Um, so just a, a broad thing, and I think that goes to show that 
it doesn't work. The same thing doesn't work on every acre. You need to be flexible. And that's one of those things when we look at making these type of changes mandatory, that's the biggest pushback I hear from agriculture is, yeah, my neighbor did cover crops and it worked for him because they're running livestock. It doesn't make sense for me because I do work off the farm in the spring. I don't have time to get out there and spray. That's why the voluntary aspect is so important. Is that how you see it as well? Absolutely. Um, You know, talking about Illinois, when we're looking at nutrient loss, we lose more nitrates from the northern part of the state and more phosphorus from the southern part Hmm. of the state. And those are two very different, have very different solutions. So to say, come in and mandate and say every farmer needs to do this doesn't work and it's not going to solve the problem. All right, Megan, for people who are listening who are interested in perhaps trying out new methods of sustainability, Illinois Corn, I know that's done a lot of research. Can you tell our folks how can they get more information? Yeah, you can go out to IllinoisCorn.org, check out our website. Uh, you can find contact information for a lot of our people. Uh, the Midwest Cover Crops Council is really great. Most of your land-grant universities have excellent information. I would say there's an abundance of information, and even your neighbors looking at local resources on what has worked. Fantastic. Megan Dwyer with Illinois Corn. Illinois Corn, thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you. All right. Well, Mike, thanks for grabbing that quick interview for us today. Great stuff there, as always. But we've always got great content here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Be sure to check us out. Check out our past episodes. You can find them on whatever app you get your podcasts or at globalagnetwork.com slash agnewsdaily. You can also connect with us on social media at Ag News Daily or at Global Ag Network on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for all three. And we're always sharing great stuff there. Talking about Commodity Classic, we're talking about healthcare, we're talking about mental health, we're talking about crop insurance. There's a lot going on right now in the world of agriculture. Follow us to make sure that you're staying up to date on the latest headlines. With that, I'll let y'all go and we'll see you back here tomorrow. (laughs) 